Let's talk a little bit about the book of Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy, in which we are currently uh, placed in Jewish space and time. Here we are at Torah portion Ekev as we make our way through Parshat Devarim to the book of Devarim, which will take us through almost all the way through the Chagim and then to Sukkot. And then we start all over again with Simcha Torah, where we start the Torah all over again and get to Torah portion Genesis. The book of Devarim, in which we are reading right now, is Moses' final speech to the people. Again, Moses is not going to go into the land with the people. The people are perched just outside, just east of Jericho, ready to come in through the land there. That's the main crossing um, at the time. It takes you away from all of the desert, and it's the way you would make it through. And there's actually a crossing today. The Allenby Bridge is right there still, right where Moses and the Israelites were about to come over from um, what today would be uh, modern-day Jordan. And Moses is not going to go into the land for his transgressions, mostly around his anger um, at hitting the rock. Remember that when the water comes out of the rock, but really because of multiple moments of Moses losing his temper and losing his grip on uh, leadership. And it's time for a new leader to arise, and Joshua has been ordained, so Moses will not go into the land. And this is his last speech to the people before they enter. What's Moses' main concern at this time in the book of Deuteronomy? He's preoccupied by the worry that once the people enter into the land of Israel, they will forget all that Moses has taught them. And there's, I think, four reasons why he has reasons for concern. First of all, let's, take a, let's think about this. What happened the last time Moses went away for a little while and the people were left on their own? Right? Moses went up 40 days on top of Mount Sinai and the people without a leader were so panicked by this that they turned to idolatry and built the golden calf. Now Moses is talking about going away and never coming back. So he has reason for concern that this people cannot be trusted on their own when he's not there. Second of all, he's worried what's going to happen to the people once they enter into the land and they suddenly have to deal with other tribes, other religions, especially those who are idolatrous in nature. Moses has just taken them through the land of Moab, and in Moab, the people turned away from God and, uh, co and consorted with the Moabites. This is in Torah portion Pinchas in, your, uh, in the book of Numbers. There was a large plague brought upon the people. There was all sorts of destruction. Moses has just recently seen that the people can be affected by other tribes around them, and now here they go in with all of the tribes of Canaan waiting for them. Third of all, Moses is worried what's going to happen once the people need to start working for a living and tending to the land, and will they forget Torah now that their 40-year sabbatical in the wilderness has ended? Really think about it, in the wilderness, the people don't have to look for food. It's provided for them in terms of manna, which falls from the sky. They don't have to figure out what direction they're going in because God shows them where they're going. They don't really have to do anything but be in covenant with God. What happens when sabbatical is over? You have to go back to your day job. Are you going to have the same sort of commitment to your relationship with God once there are bills to pay, things to do, crops to reap, all of these things. Um, in fact, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai said that only people who eat manna will keep the Torah. Shimon Bar Yochai was soon after the destruction of the first temple in, in Israel. Um, he believed that those who do not have to work for a living are the only ones who can truly stick to the Torah. 
And we see also in modern day Israel today, this is a lot of the fight going on between secular and uh, Orthodox Israelis or even religious and Orthodox Israelis around working and studying Torah at the same time. The fourth reason though is what I'd like to focus on the most. Moses is afraid that Israel is going to change its politics because entering Israel equals entering into power. Think about it, the people of Israel have never been a powerful people. They were a small tribe. Perhaps you could say that Abraham, he was able to win some wars, it's true, and he built up some riches through that. Same thing with Jacob. But we're talking about a small tribal clan. The people go down into Egypt for 400 plus years. They're in Egypt. They are ultimately powerless. They get redeemed by God, and for 40 years they've been completely subservient to God. And now suddenly they're going to be masters of their own land. And not only that, but they're going to be masters of other peoples who are found in their land. How is it that power is going to affect the people and how might it exacerbate their ability to follow the covenant? In fact, the commentator Ibn Ezra writes that moving from powerlessness to power is impossible. It will ruin a people and that God inserts the 40 years so that there is a space where the people can become acquainted with power and build up their own esteem. Of course, this is the story of the 12 spies sent into the land. The people do not feel they have the power to enter the land on their own. They're afraid of the Canaanites. And so God waits for another generation and trains them for power. My teacher at the Shalom Hartman Institute, Micha Goodman, teaches that once you have power, you can lose the ability to assess your own personality and your own powers. That once you have power, suddenly everyone laughs at your jokes, everyone wants to listen to your stories, even though your jokes and your stories might not be that interesting. For him, hubris can, can trigger a new inflated image of oneself, and that hubris occurs when there is a gap between your real power and your actual power. I think that we've all uh, watched the Anthony Weiner uh, stories this week and thought of the amazing hubris. And again, where is his self-image versus the image that he is projecting? I think it's a great example of it. You start making decisions based upon your own internal inflated idea of yourself and not upon your actual level of power. Another great historical example might be Napoleon building up all sorts of ideas of grandeur through many wars and then deciding to invade Russia in the winter. Perhaps that was a one of inflated ego of himself. Moses's speech comes again right at the end of the book of Numbers and what's the last thing that happens in the book of Numbers but a large military victory over the two big powers of the time of Og and Sihon that Moses and the Israelites defeat them, and the people are on a real high. They're going to face greater battles in Canaan, but right now they are at the top of the power that they've ever been at. And now Moses is worried what happens to a people when for the first time they have to live with power. And how do we keep power from corrupting us? I think this is really the essence of the book of Deuteronomy, is how do we live in a world in which we have autonomy and yet not let ourselves create, construct that artificial sense of self which will limit us from coming to terms with who we really are. So with your permission, I'd love to look at one example from the book of Deuteronomy which works with this. You should have the Tanakhim in front of you. So if you will follow me, turn to page 1458. I'm going to give a long time because those 
pages are really thin and hard to turn. Page 1458, 1458. It should say Deuteronomy 17 at the top, Shoftim. Okay, again, it's 1458. Okay. I think if we're going to talk about limits on power, it's a good place to start with the most powerful person in society, and that would be the king. There is no commandment anywhere in the Torah that the Israelites need to elect a king. But, as you can see, this, this begins with ki tavo el if you, having entered the land, decide to have a king like all the other peoples, here's how it's going to be. There's, again, no mandate for kingship. In fact, later on in the Tanakh, when the people call for a king, at first the prophet Samuel takes us to God and God says that they shouldn't have a king, that the only king should be God, because once you lift one person up above the rest of society, you no longer have the same sense of equality in terms of covenant with God. So here's the Torah's idea of a king who will be the most powerful person in society. If we look here from verse 14 at the top of the page, it reads, if after you've entered the land that the Lord your God has given you and occupied it and settled in it, you decide, I will set a king over me, as do all the nations about me. Right? So the first thing is that we're linking kingship to uh, assimilation to the other tribes. You shall be free to set a king over yourself, one chosen by the Lord your God. Just pause there for a moment. The idea of the king here is the exact opposite of what we might think learn about the divine right of kings, right? We often think of kingship as a person that is ordained by God and is placed over the people. Here it's very clear, even though it's the one chosen by Lord your God, it's the people who set a king over themselves. The power of the king clearly has to come from the people and not vice versa. Remember that at the time, many of the kings uh, declared that they, had, um, they were deities, People like Pharaoh, who was seen as a demigod, or others who were chosen by God or even by the land. In modern terms, someone like Ataturk. Ataturk means literally father of Turkey, someone who gives birth to the nation. Here, the nation clearly gives birth to the king. I'm going to keep going on here, and this is in verse 15. Be sure to set as king over yourself one of your own people. You must not set a foreigner over you, one who is not your kinsman. It's actually saying you have to assign one of your brothers to be the king. This person can't be an outsider, can't be someone that you find from far away, but has to be someone that you know. He has to be a brother, a member of your family. Think about this. With the members of your family are the people that you can say things to that you might not say to strangers or people you don't know as well. This has to be someone that you can call out when they are doing things that are wrong and that you feel as though you have a deeper connection to and you don't have to necessarily be polite in front of all of the time. Right? Moreover, he shall not keep many horses or send people back to Egypt to add to his horses. Since the Lord has warned you, you must not go back that way again. Horses equals military power. Our commentators will liken this as well to that in Egypt the people rode horses. So to have a horse is in a way to assimilate back into Egyptian culture. But really those with the horses are the ones who are able to, do, to control the field of battle. And the king can't have too many horses. 
there cannot be a standing army which the king presides over. In fact, later on in the Hebrew Bible, in the Tanakh, you'll see that King David and Solomon both get in trouble. Solomon famously for having so many horses, but for having so much power that they lose sense of themselves by not following these exact laws here in the, in the Torah. Okay? Continuing on, it says, And he shall not have many wives, lest his heart go astray, nor shall he amass silver and gold to excess. Again, we see Solomon doesn't really listen to this one very well, neither does King David, who has six wives. The Talmud says King David has 16. Solomon has hundreds of wives. The limit on wives isn't so much about monogamy, because actually the Torah is not specifically monogamous. By Jewish law, actually, a man back then could have up to four wives as long as he could provide for them financially. Um, don't worry, we don't do this anymore within Jewish practice, but there was polygamy within Judaism. But the bigger deal here with the king was that, as we know from our history classes, people would marry to make foreign alliances. That if you take international politics and transform them through marriage into family politics, the ideas would be more manageable at that time. It's much like how you pick a king who is a brother to you, that if your politics and international dilemmas all become internal in nature, then they won't have the same sense of, um, of conflict. Here, the king's power to make foreign alliances is severely curbed by not being able to take multiple wives. So it's yet another check on power. And then, possibly the most important, he shall not amass silver and gold to excess. There's no taxation on the part of the king in order to keep a large amount of money in order to, let's say, buy land or to, to conscript an army. The king can't have any of these things. What is it that the king does? Continue on verse 18. When he is seated on his royal throne, he shall have a copy of this teaching written for him on a scroll by the Levitical priests. So he's got a scroll of it, and not only that, but we have a, a, a priest now inserted into the picture. The king does not have all of the power. There's a separation here between church and state. We've got a political king. We've got a Levitical priest who is in charge of the temple. And the scroll is written for him by this priest. Let it remain with him and let him read it all his life so he may learn to revere the Lord his God, to observe faithfully every word of this teaching as well as these laws. There's a constitution that the king cannot go over. Thus he will not act hardly towards his fellow or deviate from the instruction to the right or to the left to the end that he and his descendants may reign long in the midst of Israel. So there you are, you have a king. All we know about him is that he is supposed to take the law and read it, and he's supposed to abide by the Levitical priests, and that we hear about what he is not supposed to do. What's glaringly absent from the text is what are the people supposed to do? There's nothing in the book of Deuteronomy saying that the people have to listen to everything that the king says. There's no punishment given in the book of Deuteronomy for disobeying the king, which is notable because there are a lot of punishments in Deuteronomy for disobeying God. But for the king, there is no sense that the people necessarily have to abide by everything the king does simply because he is the king. So let's take this back here to this season. Here we are in the month of Av, soon coming to the month of Elul and working our way towards the high holidays. Because of course, for all of us clergy members, we always have the high holidays in our mind by the time we reach the end of July. Deuteronomy teaches us 
that the way to keep power is to curb our power. If we want to have all of the power, then eventually we're going to have none of the power. Right? This is the story of David as well, story of Solomon, people who try to reach for all of the power and eventually end up with none of it. Israel will stay in the land and keep power so long as they curb their power to the Torah and do not create inflated militaristic senses of themselves. Let's take this now to the personal. The way to avoid hubris is to keep yourself from constructing this artificial inflated sense of self and the way to do so is to constantly create rituals and ways to check your own power and to remind yourself of who you actually are even if everyone laughs at your jokes and your stories. This in Judaism is halakha, Jewish law by which we pray regularly, study regularly, perform mitzvot, and most of all teshuva. The idea of teshuva, which means return, or we often define as atonement, is a regular check-in by which we assess ourselves harshly so that we do not create this inflated sense of ego which leads to our own hubris. We do this in a weekly manner every week on Shabbat. We check in with ourselves and see how our week is going, how are we measuring up to the goals that we originally set. We do this by the Shalosh Regalim, the three festivals where the ancient Israelites would come to the temple and come before the priest and need to atone and need to renew their covenant. And of course, most notably, we do this annually at Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, where we think about where we wanted to be when we started out last year and where we actually have arrived and what's the difference between the two. And we recalibrate our aim. We, we aim back towards our original, our original goal and we try to become again who we set out to be and we then, at the same time, come to grips, come to terms with our own inflated sense of selves so that we can limit our power, so that we can keep our power as well. So in this way, I hope that through a bit of a political analysis of Deuteronomy, moving to the personal and the spiritual, it gives us an additional impetus for the next six weeks or so, as this is the time for us to be thinking about our own lives, our own relationships, our own ways in which we haven't lived up to our covenant with God, with our community, our families, ourselves, so that we too may live long and prosper in the land. May it be so. Shabbat Shalom.